where you're saying, you know, the UK government are intent on getting, putting this person on a plane, but actually if they do that, mm. something terrible is going to happen. And you have to provide evidence to demonstrate that, right? Yeah. And so the court then is persuaded. And then the court issues a Rule 39 order, which, which temporarily limits, you know, temporarily stops the plane from taking off, for example. Yeah. So in the Rwanda case, um, one of the people who was on the plane, their lawyers went to the European Court of Human Rights, and the European Court was persuaded that there would be this risk of extreme and irreversible harm if the flight took off with him on it. Mm -hmm. And so they stopped him from being on the flight. Um, and they did that for a number of reasons, including that all along Priti Patel had been saying, well, if my policy is ruled unlawful, I'll just bring everyone back for, from Rwanda. But the European Court made the So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast. I'm your host, Nathan. Today we're talking human rights and I'm really delighted to be joined by Martha Spurrier, the Director of Liberty. So welcome, Martha. Hi, Nathan. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, it's a really precarious time in, in British politics with Boris Johnson having been forced to, to resign and the Justice Secretary, Dominic Robb, having recently made this extraordinary announcement that he's brought forward this Bill of Rights, which if passed by Parliament, repeals the Human Rights Act. So I started, I wanted to start by asking you, how vital has the Human Rights Act been as a piece of, of legislation? The Human Rights Act has been absolutely vital as a way of people holding the state in whatever form, whether it's the police or prisons or schools or local authorities or central government, mm -hmm. it's been vital in allowing people to hold the state to account, to get answers when things go wrong, to yeah. force lessons to be learned so that things don't go wrong again in future. It's based, of course, on the European Convention on Human Rights, which was drafted after the Second World War and sets down a kind of basic set of rights and freedoms, um, mm. which then was incorporated into UK law uh, mm. in 1997 when the Human Rights Act was passed. and. You know, it doesn't, it, it simply gives us what all functioning states should have, yeah. which is making sure people in this country have basic rights protections. Um, and it's partly, you know, I think it's partly about when things go wrong, you can get a lawyer, you can take the, the government to court, you can get a remedy for what's happened to you. Mm. Um, but it's also about something much more fundamental than that, <clears throat> which is building a human rights culture. And so what you would hope, you know, I'm a human rights lawyer by background and my feeling is always like if you need me, something has already gone really wrong. Yeah. Um, and what you really want is that no one ever needs a human rights lawyer because actually the public authorities, like I say, whether it's a hospital or a prison or a police station, that they have embedded human rights in the, in the very fabric of the way that they do things mm -hmm. so that if your loved one is in a care home, the way that they will be treated the way that they will be looked after, decisions made about their treatment, decisions made about end-of-life care, all of those things will have human rights at the heart of them so that you'd never need to think about making a complaint or bringing a case based on the Human Rights Act. You know, it, sh it should be a bit like health and safety, just yeah. something that like, we all have all the time to keep us safe and keep us free. So over, over the decades, so since 1998 when, when Tony Blair's government mm. forced the Human Rights Act in, there's been a lot of... An Unease, like political unease, with with the act. Why? Why do you think that is? 
So I think part of the point of human rights, of course, is to put limits on power Mm. and particularly to put limits on power when abuses of power are suffered by minoritized groups, um, people who maybe don't get their voice heard at the ballot box because they're not in the majority. So that means that they're often not vote winners. They are often kind of politically unloved communities. And governments of all colours, you know, in the Blair government, like you say, Blair brought this act onto the statute books, but after the terror attacks in 9-11 was quick to say that maybe it should be amended so that they could detain terror suspects for an extraordinarily long time, for example. And every government since then has talked about the idea of either amending or repealing the Human Rights Act because Mm. governments don't like limits on their powers and they particularly don't like limits on their coercive powers, which is, of course, kind of where the Human Rights Act bites most of all. Um, But I think, firstly, that debate about you know, terror attacks or whatever obscures the very mundane work of human rights mm. that's that's used day in, day out by ordinary people, but also by public servants in trying to provide safe services. Mm. Um, and also ignores the many, many cases where human rights have been the difference between life and death, the difference between justice and injustice. Mm. Um, whether you're talking about the Hillsborough families or the victims of the black cab rapist John Warboys, mm. whether you're talking about Windrush families, all of these people who will have only had the Human Rights Act to rely on. You mm. know, again, when I was a lawyer, I would sit with people, advise them on what their rights were. Yeah. We weren't talking about loads and loads of different pieces of legislation. We were just talking about the Human Rights Act and how they could use that to get justice. So no surprise that it comes under fire from politicians. Mm -hmm. I think what's been very shocking uh, under this government is two things. Firstly, that, as you said in your introduction, Dominic Raab, the Justice Secretary, has gone further than any government has previously and actually proposed to repeal the Human Rights Act and introduce a Bill of Rights, which just takes rights away. It does nothing at all in terms of protection. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a hugely regressive step in terms of giving people rights and freedoms in this country. Um, but also talk about pulling out of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is incredibly dangerous, and then setting that in the context of a wider, really toxic agenda of a whole range of pieces of legislation which attack rights. So attacks on protest rights, for example, attacks on the mechanisms by which people can take the government to court, ripping up the Refugee Convention. You know, we've seen a whole slew of oppressive pieces of legislation which attack our rights in myriad different ways. And the Human Rights Act is the kind of biggest threat of all, but it's only one of many under this government. And that's been pretty shocking to see. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. You, you, you mentioned there the, the Balmarsh case, um, which, which Tony Blair sort of used to, to bring in control orders yeah. and, and those type of things. How many other seminal cases have there been which we can sort of point to and say, look, this, this legislation is really fundamental and yeah. it needs to stay on the statute book. Yeah, so I think there are, there are lots of seminal cases. Um, and obviously it only takes one seminal case. So, mm. for example, a case of a woman called Melanie Raybone, um, who was a woman who had serious mental health problems and she went into psychiatric care mm. and then she was discharged and there wasn't a proper risk assessment done of the risk that she posed to herself and she took her own life soon afterwards. Mm. And Melanie's family brought a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court arguing that the right to life, Article 2, under the European Convention, Mm. put an obligation on doctors, nurses, to properly 
risk assess people and that if they did pose a risk to themselves to take steps to protect them. Like it's not rocket science, you know, yeah. kind of hope that's what doctors and nurses yeah. are supposed to do. Mm. But it, it took the Supreme Court saying, yes, this is what Article 2 is all about, taking steps to protect people. So the Rayburn case was a seminal case, it was the first time that had been articulated, but what it's meant is that following that case, yeah. you know, every time there is a death which could have been prevented, someone in the community who should maybe have been in hospital, should have been getting better services, should have been getting more support. You can have an inquest at which the family of the person who's died will be represented by a lawyer, they'll get legal aid, they can make arguments to the coroner, both to get an answer as to why this happened to the person that they loved, but also in a way, kind of more importantly, to get systems change, you know, to say that if we don't have the right forms or if we don't have the right policies, then more people are going to die. Um, and you sort of see this, right? Like the bu bureaucracy of any state can be fatal for some people. Yeah. And, and we've seen many cases, you know, deaths of benefits claimants, for example, who've been sanctioned unbelievably harshly and have starved to death, people like Errol Graham. Yeah. And his family used the Human Rights Act to try and get answers and to get changes to the benefit system to protect people in future. So I think. We can point to many seminal cases. Hillsborough, again, the only way those families got their fresh inquest was using the Human Rights Act. The only way that the victims of, of the John Warboys attacks mm -hmm. held the police to account for their failure to investigate and then arrest him was by taking a case under Article 3, which is the right to be protected from inhuman and degrading treatment. Again, took that case all the way to the Supreme Court in the UK, mm -hmm. and the Supreme Court ruled, again, what I imagine your listeners would think kind of shouldn't be rocket science, but they yeah. ruled that when the police receive a credible allegation of serious crime, mm -hmm. they have an obligation to investigate, to investigate it effectively. Yeah. And in that case, you know, no doubt at, at the root of it, the misogyny and awfulness that we've seen that's part and parcel of police culture in this country, mm. they hadn't investigated effectively at all. And the, you know, the Supreme Court made a finding that if the police had done their job, mm. many, many women would not have been sexually assaulted. So these are very real, concrete protections that genuinely save lives and stop people's mm. futures being ruined. Um, it's terrifying the idea that you would take them away and it's a cynical bit of trying to put yourself above the law if you're the government, shield yourself from accountability. Um, and also playing politics with something that just, for many of us, is should be above politics. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of our listeners will, will listen to that and will be, will be frightened to think that why on earth would somebody want to take away any yeah. of those rights that that, that you talk about there. So let's 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 break this down to, to its simplest elements. So what rights is Dominic Robb taking away from us okay. by, by, by repealing the Human Rights Act? So Dominic Robb has put forward this Bill of Rights, which is nothing of the sort. It's you know a rights removal bill really. Um, and it's a long list of rights mm. that he's planning to take away. So they kind of fall into different categories. Mm. One of the categories is like the real meat and fabric of the rights themselves. So I've talked about the Hillsborough families, I've talked about the survivors of the John Warboys attacks mm. and Melanie Ray Raybone. Those kinds of cases all concern what are called positive obligations, which is just a legalistic phrase for saying circumstances in which a public authority has to take positive steps yeah. to protect your rights. Yeah. Um, and like I say, countless examples in everyday life of mm. when a police officer or a doctor or a teacher has to actually do something proactive to make sure somebody is mm. safe. Um, the Bill of Rights proposes to 
prevent any further positive obligations from being developed. So if the Hillsborough case happened now, if the Melanie Raybone case happened now, um, if the John Warboys attacks happened now, those victims of those human rights violations would be able to do nothing to hold the state to account because we wouldn't be allowed to develop any new positive obligations. And even the positive obligations that do exist, they are proposing to limit by range of a whole by reference to a whole range of kind of factors in the legislation, mm-hmm. which will in practice make it really difficult for people to have proper, full, fearless inquiries into unlawful deaths and things like that. Another area where they're slashing and burning rights protections mm. um, is in relation to Article 8, which is the right to family life. Mm. And their focus here, and again, you know, it's no surprise because it's been so much of the really toxic rhetoric, is on migrants' rights. Mm-hmm. And what they want to do is two things. So first of all, make it very difficult indeed for anyone who is resisting deportation mm. to make an argument that they should stay in this country because of their family ties. Mm. Um, and that, of course, could include you know, someone who came here when they were five and has been here ever since and knows this is their home, this is their country, you know, and knows no other place and has no other ties to any other country. And the only circumstances in which they would be able to resist deportation Mm -hmm. on the grounds of their family life under this bill um, is if they can show that them being removed from the UK would cause um, extreme and irreversible harm to a dependent and that dependent has themselves to be a UK citizen, you know, so you can see the kind of racist Mm. undertones um, of some of these provisions. It also provides that um, you would be able to deport people even if they were going to face a breach of their right to a fair trial in the country where they would be going back to. Um, Again, it's a kind of, all of these things you can talk about in the, the different provisions of these individual rights and why they're terrible and they are terrible mm. and radical, you know, much worse than anything we'd imagined. But once you start saying, well, actually, if you're a migrant, then you don't have access to this whole portion of human rights. Mm. They do the same with prisoners. They kind of carve out a whole section of this bill is about prisoners not having access to proper human rights protections. Mm. Um, they do the same for people who are fighting a criminal trial, for example. They say that those people won't be able to rely on free speech protections. Mm. And the problem is, is obviously, or you'd think it would be obvious, the whole point of human rights is that they're universal, you yeah. know, and they're there particularly to protect the kind of people that otherwise society might inflict serious abuse on. Mm. Prisoners, people in custody, protesters, those kinds of groups. So what we have in this bill is an attack on the on the very idea of universal human rights protections and mm. making those protections conditional on a load of things, including citizenship. But also, for example, there's a provision in the bill which states that even if you win your human rights claim, so you show that you've suffered a human rights violation, you might not be able to get any remedy. So you might a judge might not be able to give you an award of damages or whatever if your conduct in the judge's view, um, is such that they don't think that you should be given that remedy. And conduct isn't just about how you've behaved in relation to the issue in the case. Conduct is conduct through your whole life. So again, you can sort of see, you can imagine doing these cases and someone might have been horribly beaten up by the police, for example, or not given the proper healthcare in prison, Mm. but because they've got a criminal record, they don't get any, they don't get any justice, you know? So it's a, it becomes a tiered system of rights protection, which means it isn't really a system of rights protection at all. Um, And then there are a whole range of other things where what the government is trying to do is tie the hands of the courts, because Mm. of course this is part of 
an executive power project which goes much further than just the Human Rights Act and the Bill of Rights Mm -hmm. and is about trying to stop scrutiny and accountability, whether that comes through the courts, whether that comes through protests in the streets, Mm -hmm. whether it comes through the ballot box. So in the bill, um, there is a mechanism which would prevent judges from reading legislation compatibly with human rights. So again, like sounds very legalistic, but right now the Human Rights Act provides for judges to say, well, this piece of legislation, if it was interpreted in this way, mm-hmm. would have the effect of breaching human rights. Therefore, we're going to interpret it in a different way so that yeah. it doesn't breach human rights. Yeah. Takes away that obligation altogether. So we might now have human rights violating legislation that we can't do anything about. So what? So there's no more declaration of incompatibility? So there is declarations of incompatibility, but there's no more section three, so no more of just reading down the legislation. Mm. Um, and so the courts could say, we think this legislation is incompatible with human rights, yeah. but then the ball is back in Parliament's court, and if you have a kind of bullish and brazen executive like we currently do with a big majority, there's mm. nothing to make them do anything about that. And so we may then have languishing on our statute books, human rights violating laws, you know, forever. Um, There's a whole section as well in the bill about human rights protection for um, both military personnel, but also people who fall victim to the British military, either here or abroad. Mm. Again, obviously, a whole line of cases about service personnel using the Human Rights Act to get justice when they haven't been given proper equipment, for example, or when they've faced hideous kind of bullying, sexual assault, rape attacks um, Mm. in toxic army barracks, the deep cut cases, for example, but also cases brought by people like the family of Baha Musa Mm. um, to hold the British military to account for unthinkably horrendous crimes um, and human rights violations committed against civilians abroad. All of those cases would be wiped out um, by the Bill of Rights. I mean, it's it's really extraordinary and it's... um it's, it's difficult to reconcile. So let's let's talk about minoritized uh, minoritized groups. So recently we've we've seen uh, a lot of people who arrive uh, across the channel and the sort of treatment that they receive and this Rwanda policy that yeah. Pretty Patel has come with. That that first deportation flight was only stopped because there were some representations made to the European Court. Talk us through that whole process and what happens now if this Bill of Rights comes through. Yeah. What sort of recourse will those type of people get? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say about that Rwanda flight was it was pretty obviously a cynical setup by the government to mm-hmm. pit judges and lawyers against the government and their plans, their like utterly corrosive and racist plans to deport people to Rwanda. Mm-hmm. Because there is a challenge to that whole policy and the challenge is being heard this month in July. Yeah. So a law-abiding government should say, mm-hmm. well, obviously we're not going to send anyone to Rwanda until a judge has decided whether this policy is lawful. And so mm-hmm. the first flight can't take off. So even by scheduling a flight, it was such an affront to the idea of proper due process and justice. Mm. What then happened with the flight um, is, as you say, there were an ever diminishing number of people on it um, because the policy is so obviously flawed and ill thought through. So people were kind of coming off all the time that individuals, lawyers were making representations. There were obviously a huge number of journalists and campaigners and activists involved as well. Then on the day of the flight, there were about seven people left um, with many kind of different lawyers involved. And some of those people exhausted their attempts to 
get off the flight mm. in the UK and so went to the European Court of Human Rights under an emergency procedure, it's called Rule 39, yeah. which only exists to prevent extreme and irreversible harm. Mm. So it's very rarely used. I think there were 15 applications under that rule last year. Mm. Um, I think only nine of them were granted. It's almost always in deportation cases mm. where you're saying, you know, the UK government are intent on getting putting this person on a plane, but actually if they do that, mm. something terrible is gonna happen and you have to provide evidence to demonstrate that, right? Yeah. And so the court then is persuaded. And then the court issues a Rule 39 order which, which temporarily limits, you know, temporarily stops the plane from taking off, for example. Yeah. So in the Rwanda case, um, one of the people who was on the plane, their lawyers went to the European Court of Human Rights and the European Court was persuaded that there would be this risk of extreme and irreversible harm if the flight took off with him on it. Mm -hmm. And so they stopped him from being on the flight. Um, and they did that for a number of reasons, including that all along Priti Patel had been saying, well, if my policy is ruled unlawful, I'll just bring everyone back for, from Rwanda. Yeah. But the European Court made the point that like, once they're there, they're outside of the control of the European Court of Human Rights, they're outside of UK jurisdiction. So there was no guarantee that they would be able to be brought back at all. And that was where the, the risk lay. But also, and this was really underrepresented um, in the press, also the British Court of Appeal injuncted the flight. So late that night, about half past eight, three judges of the Court of Appeal sat and heard further applications for injunctions for some of the other individuals on the flight and granted them. So it wasn't just the European Court, it was so both... So that, that, that yeah, never ever came never up? Never came up. It was the UK Court of Appeal injuncted some and the European Court of Human Rights injuncted another. And then, of course, as we know, then what happened is that there was no one left on the plane, so it didn't take off. What's been, again, kind of deeply opportunistic and horrible is that in the Bill of Rights, having not consulted on this idea at all, um, Dominic Raab has now put in a provision to no longer obey Rule 39 rulings, so no longer obey the instructions from the Strasbourg court that something shouldn't happen because there's a risk of extreme and irreversible harm. And that's extraordinary for a number of reasons. Firstly, because it's just like kind of knee-jerk legislation, just in mm. just because they're annoyed about something. But also because the Strasbourg Court has been very clear that Rule 39 is part of the international legal order like any other rule from an international court. Mm. You can't just... I mean, this government can, right? Because they, yeah. they treat There's international law as Breaching international law, law right. all over the exactly. place. Yeah, so but this is the latest one. So this bill says that the courts must disregard mm. Rule 39 orders. And that's just a straightforward breach of international law right there on the face of the legislation. It's, it's sort of difficult to then see what then happens to, to, to the people who will be making representations um, in the British courts. So what do you think will happen with that test case, the, the initial one? The Rwanda case? The Rwanda case, yeah. Every instinct I have, you know, as a lawyer and a campaigner, is that this is not a lawful policy. Mm. Um, and I really hope that that's what the judges in the High Court and probably then the Court of Appeal and probably then the Supreme Court conclude. Having said that, um, you know, the courts are a conservative place at the moment. Mm. They, ever since the cases around proroguing parliament, you know, the Miller cases, and the idea of judges being the enemies of the people, mm. there again has been an effective kind of publicity campaign underpinned then by pieces of legislation, which has been the government telling the courts to back off and stop kind of meddling in political business. Mm. And I think we have really seen 
the downstream effects of that in the, the kind of current judiciary that we have. Mm-hmm. Fewer cases are upheld against the government than they used to be. And while it would be lovely to think, well, that's because this government doesn't breach the law as much as other governments, I mean, that's a total fantasy, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I think instead, what we're seeing, and certainly what we hear from Liberty's lawyers and other lawyers who are doing these cases, is getting really, really hard to win human rights cases now. Um, we have a conservative judiciary and a conservative court system. Yeah. And so, like I say, I really, you know, hope against hope that this Rwanda policy is seen to be unlawful, because I think it is on a number of levels, but I don't think we can exclude the risk that a judge finds a way to give it the green light. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's really remarkable. So one of the key features of this, this Bill of Rights is this creation of a permission stage. Mm-hmm when people want to have judicial review. Talk us, talk us through that and explain to our audience what, what, what this practically means yeah. for them. Yeah, so as you say, the Bill of Rights introduces a permission stage for all human rights cases. Um, and it's one of those things where it looks sort of procedural and maybe no one's going to write headlines about a permission stage on human rights cases, mm. but actually it's a huge barrier to access to justice. So what it means in practice is that So say you're a protester and you get unlawfully arrested at a protest and maybe you get assaulted by the police. To bring a claim against the police, arguing that they violated your right to protest, arguing that they abused you, abused their power, um, you would now have to persuade a judge that Mm. you had suffered a significant disadvantage before you would be allowed to bring your case. And there's a number of problems with that. One is like, what does significant disadvantage mean? The rhetoric has been about knocking out trivial human rights claims, but I mean, I just think that's a contradiction in terms. No such thing as a human trivial yeah. human rights violation. A human rights violation is a serious thing. Yeah. Um, so already they're seeding the idea that there will be some cases where, sure, there's a human rights violation, but it's not so serious. So we don't need to go to court. We don't need to have any justice or accountability. Um, but also, on a really like nitty gritty level, mm-hmm. at the very beginning of your case, when you're a claimant, when you're the one bringing the claim you often don't have any of the evidence that you need to be able to win. So you might have some like photos that you took on your phone of the injuries that you suffered at the hands of the police. Yeah. You might have a bit of video footage that your friend took as you were being arrested. But things like the custody record, things like any body-worn video that the police might have been wearing, things like video from inside the police van, yeah. all of those documents are in the hands of the state and you have to go through a long process to get hold of them and then work out the strengths of your case. So if you go before a judge very early on and you don't have access to any of that stuff, mm. you can imagine a judge just making a swift decision. You know, we've just been talking about how conservative the judiciary are. Yeah. And I was telling you earlier that I did a number of protest cases when, when I was practicing as a barrister and had judges say, well, you know, we've never been to a protest, so we don't really know mm. what's normal. This seems very loud. This seems very boisterous. Yeah. So already you're, you know, in, the, in all these cases, you're operating on the back foot, you're fighting against a pretty powerful establishment that don't really want to find in your favour a lot of the time. Putting that hurdle of a permission stage just means more cases will get knocked out and more people won't get justice and more human rights violations will be committed with impunity. So will we see the prospect of a whole load of cases when people don't get justice here that they might try and seek justice in the European court. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an inevitable consequence of this bill, is that many more people will go to Strasbourg. Um, And, you know, that's bad in a number of ways. Like, the whole point of the Human Rights Act 
the Blair government when they brought it in talked about bringing rights home. Yeah. You know, and this is sending rights back. Um, so mm. yeah, we now we now wouldn't have a framework for proper rights protection in the UK. We would have to, people would have to go to Strasbourg to vindicate their rights. But the difficulty is, there's no legal aid available for going to Strasbourg. So if you want a lawyer to go to the European Court of Human Rights and argue your case, you mm. either have to find someone who'll do it for free, or you've got to pay them. Um, and it also takes years. You know, it can take six, seven, eight years to get your case heard in Strasbourg. Um, so we're not talking about swift justice, if we're talking about justice at all, because many people just will never get there. Um, mm. And so I think what we will see is a significant increase in the number of cases that go to Europe, but also a number which we will never know of mm. cases that could have gone there, should have gone there, but haven't, and injustices that then just lie unsolved, unremedied. Um, and I think the other thing, and this is maybe like my sort of cynical side talking, mm. but there is a real fear that of course part of what this is designed to do is set up a collision course between the Strasbourg court and the, the UK, you know, because yeah. the more people that go to Strasbourg and get judgments against the UK, which at the moment is pretty rare, Strasbourg very, very rarely finds against the UK because mm. we have a good domestic system for mm. realising human rights protections in our own domestic courts. But that will change, right? Um, and so the more that Strasbourg finds against us, the more that politicians will be reactionary. And, you know, we remember the prisoner voting saga with David Cameron yeah. saying it made him feel physically sick that the European Court had said prisoners had to vote. We will get that time and again. Um, and, and that then means that this kind of bubbling conversation, which is already live in the Tory party about leaving the whole convention system, pulling yeah. out of the Council of Europe, that conversation gets louder. Because the more there are these collisions between the government and the European court, the more there will be calls to take back control, you know, everything that we've heard before. Yeah. Um, and if we see us pulling out of the convention system, you know, that's, that's extraordinary. I mean, Russia was kicked mm. out of the convention system. I mean, it's, it, the bedfellows we would be with, um, it would be utterly disgraceful and humiliating. God knows what it would do to, you know, Britain standing on the world stage, whatever is left of that. But... It would also just, for a lot of people, mean daily things would be worse. Daily interactions with the state in whatever form they take could be more abusive, more unfair, more unjust, and there wouldn't be a way of fighting it. Well, it's, it's, it's really difficult to, to take all of this in because there's so many changes that are, that are happening so quickly. One of the issues that a lot of people will be concerned about is whether public authorities will now have license to to make pronouncements and decisions which are not compatible yeah. with with what the European Convention Convention says, we are we likely to see the prospect of that rising? Yeah, I think we are. Um, you know, none of this is <laughs> none of this is a good news story. Yeah. Um, I think you know one of the areas um, where what the government is trying to do is mm. to set up a system where, as I said, they can pass legislation that is incompatible with human rights, mm. but also where if public authorities are then acting to deliver that legislation, they can't, they are immune from prosecution, mm. basically. So say you had a law which, say you had a law on immigration or you had a law on um, armed conflict, mm. which was a blatantly human rights violating law, mm. what the government want to do is first of all, be able to pass that law and for it not to be challenged. And then secondly, to say to the army or the home office or whoever is kind of 
operationalizing it Mm -hmm. that because they are just doing the bidding of that piece of primary legislation Mm -hmm. they can't be challenged in the courts um so yeah i think you're right i think the idea of big kind of massive state bodies including those ones who have a huge amount of punitive and coercive power um Mm. over all of our lives and often over the lives of people abroad if we're talking about the military um act in a way that's incompatible with human rights confident in the knowledge that no one can really do anything about it so people will find that they've got no legal remedies soon soon enough that there's really nothing that you can do if a public body makes this pronouncement you really got no recourse yeah that will often be the case i mean obviously you know i hope firstly that there will be other ways of people trying to get justice through campaigning and activism and journalism and you know um Mm. voting with their feet at the ballot box but it's definitely true that the legal remedies available will be limited and restricted restricted. because you you spoke about before about hillsborough yeah if the the legal landscape mm. was as is what Dominic Robb proposes, mm-hmm. would those people not have been able to, to get justice? No, there's a real chance that they wouldn't because that case, when it happened, um, well, not when, so the tragedy obviously happened a long time ago before we had the Human Rights Act. Yeah. Um, and then the families were able to rely on the Human Rights Act to argue that they should have a fresh inquest. Mm. And at the time that they were doing that, that was a new idea, you know, um, and... Yes, yeah. So, yeah, if, that, if something like that happened again now that we haven't envisaged, then families would be without recourse to justice because they aren't, you wouldn't be allowed to make arguments for new legal obligations. Mm. Um, you know, so it's, it's frozen in time. And I think you can think of loads of examples, like there are arguments going on right now in relation to the Grenfell disaster mm. about where, how much human rights can stretch to give those families justice. Obviously, they've had the inquiry, but behind the scenes, there are ongoing arguments, legal arguments, about those families getting remedies for the harm that they suffered, either people who were bereaved by the fire or people who witnessed such traumatising things that they will forever have to live with that trauma and that that has limited how they can be in the world, um, or the many knock-on effects that the tragedy had on many, many families. And, you know, right now... The lawyers in those cases can make those arguments through the courts, can push as hard as they can, be as creative as they can, to try and show that, of course, these families deserve human rights protection and should get justice. But under this bill, you know, fast forward six months or whatever, if we see it on the statute books, they wouldn't be able to make any of those creative arguments. And we don't know what the next big tragedy is going to be. We we didn't know it was going to be Grenfell. People didn't know it was going to be Hillsborough. We didn't know there was going to be a pandemic. Mm -hmm. But what it means is that... Fast forward a year, whatever the next thing is that happens that really is the state's fault and that is a culmination of all of those malign forces of racism and poverty and structural oppression, mm. that human rights can offer some semblance. I mean, you know, again, like, let's be real, it's not, you don't get total justice from bringing a human rights claims, you, you, yeah. you get a measure of justice. Um, whatever that case ends up being under this bill, the families would be shut out from legal remedy. What, what I'm hearing is that, in the end, what will happen is there might just become a significant gap between the understanding of the way that human rights are interpreted by the European court yeah. and the way that they're interpreted by the British court. Yeah. So it's this ideological thing that's pitted them, yeah. and then the public loses in the end. Completely. And people's rights are, are diminished. Yeah, 
Yeah, the public loses. And I think, you know, one of the things, again, that I, as I sort of doom scroll through Twitter on this sort of stuff, like the, yeah. one of the things that I find really sad is that most people don't know about the Human Rights Act for mm. a lot of reasons, including that hopefully they've never had to use it, like I said, but also that no government has ever really got behind it. And so we don't think of human rights like we think of the precious NHS or like we think of basic health and safety legislation or whatever. We should do. You know, it should be just one yeah. of those sacred cows. Yeah. Um, but it isn't because it's never been in the interest of any government to make it mm. that precious. Um, and so I think we're already in a kind of vulnerable place. And then when these when this overhaul, when this rights raid is put forward, it's put forward as though it's something that the public want. Mm. And I just don't believe that. The public have been fed lies and distortions for years about human rights. Mm. And then they are fed lies and distortions about what this bill will do. You know, Dominic Raab talks about it being giving more rights, which is just a lie. Um, will, so, will, will it not give more rights and freedom of speech? Because no. this, this is what he's been talking about. And you know how... Um, there was this case a, a while ago about misuse of um, of privacy yeah. information, yeah. Um, the, the Naomi Campbell yeah. case yeah. and things like that. And they were worried at the time about judi- judges essentially developing laws and people getting taught mm. and bringing about causes of action. And they're sort of saying that, well, that's, that's sort of the role of parliament mm. and that judges shouldn't really be in a position where they're doing that. Yeah. Is this partly why Rob is bringing this Bill of Rights, to sort of limit that and tilt the balance back to Parliament. Definitely. So Rob's ideology is definitely that the courts and judges should not be able to make law and that instead it should be up to... And again, it's not in favour of Parliament, it's in favour of the executive. We have a weak Parliament. If you've got an executive with an 80-seat majority, Mm. you can kiss goodbye to parliamentary scrutiny. There there hasn't been any on most of the stuff that this government's done because they're too powerful. So when they talk about this is about Parliament and the people, what they Mm. actually mean is this is about the executive and the small minority of voters that they're targeting so that they can keep winning elections. Um, And yes, they are absolutely trying to enshrine their own sovereignty over lawmaking and so that they can do whatever they want and pass whatever laws they want. Um, I, I think, you know, one of the really important things, again, is sort of seeing through the spin because, as you say, Dominic Raab has briefed that this bill is a free speech bill. Yeah. But when you look at the bill, this bill is not a free speech bill. So it doesn't give you any rights we don't already have across the board. Um, free speech already gets enhanced protection in the Human Rights Act. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's a balancing act between free speech and privacy, Mm -hmm. and that has been fraught territory, particularly for the tabloids, for a long time, because Mm -hmm. the Human Rights Act is the reason why tabloid journalists can't go through your bins, Mm -hmm. you know? And they can't doorstep you if you've just had some big scandal. They can't fly a helicopter over your house to try and get evidence of something. Like, you know, it was a way of reining in some of the more... um, shall we say, (laughs) I don't know how to put it, some of the more invasive forms of particularly kind of tabloid journalism where there was no public interest, but you can be sure that the public were interested. Mm. So they were promised in the run-up to this bill a, you know, the way you talked about it, it was like they were going to get some sort of American-style free speech First Amendment. Well, that's not what they've got. Um, What they've got is some wording which, again, gives enhanced protection to free speech, but very little difference between that and the wording in the Human Rights Act. 
And then actually a whole load of circumstances in which free speech can be interfered with by the state. Because, of course, the thing with this government is they only like free speech that they want to hear. So if your speech is protest, they don't want to hear that. You know, if you're, if you're trying to use free speech protections to defend yourself for toppling a statue of Edward Colston into Bristol Harbour, mm. they don't like that. So what we see in the bill is that, yeah, you have free speech until you need to rely on free speech to resist deportation or to defend yourself in a criminal trial or where there's national security at play, in which case you don't have free speech anymore. So they treat it as a gift from the state that they can take away when they want to, um, which is no surprise, of course. And for people like Chris Mullins, who a journalist who recently successfully relied on the Human Rights Act to stop the police from making him reveal his sources, you know, these provisions are really worrying because there are provisions in this bill which would say that if it's in the context of investigating crime or if it's in the context of national security, a journalist might be forced to reveal their sources. Mm. And of course, some of the most important and cutting edge investigative journalism is going to be in exactly those areas. The kind of journalists who revealed injustices like the Birmingham Six were squarely in in the frame of national security and and criminal justice. And Mm. it was vitally important that those people did not get forced to reveal their sources. So yeah, there was a lot of hot air about free speech and we see none of it translated into actual legal protections in the bill. And the other thing there was a lot of hot air about was jury trials. Mm. Um, And there is a right to jury in this bill, but we don't really need a right to a jury trial because we already have that right in certain criminal cases. You know, if you're accused of murder or something really serious, then you have a right to a jury trial in England. But there are thousands of cases, criminal cases, that happen every day where Mm. we don't have a jury trial. There's no juries in magistrates' courts, for example. Mm. And lots of cases in Scotland and Northern Ireland where there won't be jury trials. And no one's suggesting that those aren't fair trials. And this bill isn't suggesting that there should be juries in all those cases. So again, it's a phantom. You know, it's just a, a made-up bit of hot air so that Dominic so, so what, what, what is the sum total of this bill then? What, what does it actually do? Does it introduce any new rights for, for the public at all? The bill does not introduce a single new right. It only takes rights away. That's extraordinary. Yeah, it's an extraordinary assault on human rights protections an extraordinary assault on the idea of universal human rights and on the idea of governments having to comply with basic rights and freedoms. Mm. Do you think they also sort of lean on the courts here to sort of interpret legislation in the way that they want to? Because if these type of instructions were happening anywhere else, like North Korea or Russia, we would look very dimly on this. And it's, it's it appears on the face of it as though it's starting to happen here. Totally, and we have supposedly looked dimly on this in the past. You know, there were times when um, the Russian Duma was kind of passing pronouncements on human rights and cases that had been in the European Court of Human Rights, which the UK and other countries in the Council of Europe were really critical of. Mm. And the UK now is doing exactly the same, trying to tie the court's hands from being able to uphold human rights protections and instead to just fatten the power of the executive so that they can do what they want and not be accountable for it. Um, you know, I, I don't think it can be overstated how dramatic this is. There, is. there is no Bill of Rights or Human Rights Act or whatever in any democracy in the world mm. that does what this bill does. It doesn't deserve its name. This is not a Bill of Rights. Wow. And finally, Martha, um, when we add all of this together, so we've got a police bill that's come in, um, people's rights to protest are being limited, You've got this very ghastly nationality and borders bill. What does this all amount to, do you think? So when you stand back and you survey the scene of the legislation that's been passed or is currently in the works, then you see 
a dramatic shift in rights protection and in freedom from state abuse mm. in this country and an extraordinary shrinking of executive political accountability mm. you know it's a government that didn't want to obey, obey the rules around covid doesn't want to obey the rules around anything else either no. and by methodical and strategic legislation over the past few years, mm. as you say, we have seen attacks on the right to protest, attacks on the right of the Gypsy Roma traveller community, mm. um, we have seen attacks on voting yeah. and making it harder to make your voice heard at the ballot box, we've seen the ripping up of the Refugee Convention and the kind of enshrining of Fortress Britain in the Nationality and Borders Act, mm. um, we've seen it being made harder to bring a judicial review and then harder to get justice if you win one mm. in the Judicial Review Act. I mean, mm. it has been an absolute onslaught of oppressive pieces of legislation, all of which have the kind of dual function of one, preventing scrutiny of powerful people, and two, preventing ordinary people from mm. going about their lives in a way that is safe and free, and when things go, go wrong, from holding the powerful to account and getting justice. Hmm. Well, on that rather depressing <laughs> note, thank you so much for speaking to <laughs> Thanks us. Thanks so much, Nathan. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>so i'm really grateful to martha for that masterclass in human rights given her clarity of thought and robust defense of these universal human rights it does beg the question that dominic robb would even contemplate diluting any of these rights is remarkable so which which one of these rights would any reasonable person seek to limit the right to life the right to freedom from torture and inhumane or degrading treatment the right to freedom from slavery and forced labor, the right to liberty and security, the right to a fair trial, no punishment without law, the respect for your private and family life, home and correspondence, freedom of thought, belief and religion, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly and association, the right to marry and to start a family. What Rob is doing is a gratuitous act of vandalism and it diminishes Britain's reputation around the world. So go along to Liberty's website and have a look at the numerous cases that they're engaged with. It goes without saying that there are a bulwark against executive authority and will no doubt be at the forefront of opposing this bill. So don't forget to subscribe and follow. Until the next episode of the Still We Rise podcast, Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.